In John's Gospel in chapter 3, we will come today to one of the more familiar passages that uh, we'll cover the next couple of weeks for sure. I'm still a little on the fence as to whether it may end up covering the next three. But you will see that as we move forward in this. But before we really dive into chapter 3, I want to offer you some perspective that comes to us from chapter 2 in verses 23 through 25. So what we find there is a passage I didn't cover last week, but I believe does go along with the one here. It is another transitional passage that John provides for us as we go through these various incidents in which the glory of Christ is being revealed and the very nature of Christ as the Son of God is coming to the forefront. But this is an interesting one and one that I think as you hear verses 23 through 25, you'll think to yourself, huh, I don't remember that. Um, chapter 3 has long been known for verse 16 as the most familiar verse in the uh, gospel in a nutshell, as it's so often referred to. And the focus of attention is generally evangelistic as we think through it. But really, all of chapter 3, while yes, evangelistic, is more about identifying genuine faith as compared to false faith. It is about identifying a faith that has foundation through a relationship with Jesus rather than the lack of foundation, but rather fixed on external things. I think we're always in danger of that. We find ourselves so stimulated by all of the various things around us these days, and we're so uh, engaged all the time that when we aren't, we suddenly think we're bored. And so our attention span grows less and less with each passing day and each exposure. And as a result of that, we fail to see the depth. Depth can only be understood and appreciated with contemplation, with meditation, with thoughtful consideration. And so that's what we're doing as we go through this passage. But we do so, first of all, with what amounts to something of a warning through this transitional passage. In verse 23, it says, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These verses transition from the previous story of the cleansing of the temple to what we'll look at today in the conversation with Nicodemus. But the people witnessed the ministry of Jesus, and verse 23 tells us that many believed in his name. But they believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing. Now that sounds great. Outward signs are a strong motivation and draw specific attention. I'm not denying that at all. But the movement, while gaining momentum, people are getting excited about Jesus, and yet, where does that excitement lie? 
verse 24 explains and tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew them. In other words, Jesus did not believe their believing. (laughs) He knew what was happening had more to do with infatuation than consecration. They weren't believing in Jesus, they were believing in signs. They weren't looking at the heart, they were looking at the external shell. They weren't thinking in terms of the kingdom, they were thinking in terms of themselves. It is easy for us to fall into this rut. We're essentially sinful and basically selfish. It is not an uncommon thing that we would be drawn to this. What I'm telling you is that genuine faith requires intentional effort on the part of the believer for it to be realized. Genuine faith, while a gift from God that enables us to trust in him, also must be cultivated through discipleship. And what we see lacking in the crowd that was believing in the name of Jesus because of the signs were failing to believe in the man, Jesus. Faith has to be grounded in knowing Christ, not just things that are associated with Christ. People are easily excited by outward signs and trends, but neither of those are genuine foundations for true faith. The love of external experiences does not necessarily provide the needed internal transformation. Jesus knew their hearts, and I might add, he knows ours today as well. Verse 25 affirms that Jesus knew what was on the inside of the people who claimed to believe. This verse transitions to the encounter with Nicodemus, who also was aware of the signs that Jesus had done. It seems that his curiosity went beyond the outward signs to a genuine desire to know more about the man behind the miracles. title of the message is The Man Behind the Miracles. First of all, we see that in chapter 3, Nicodemus is presented to us in verses 1 and 2 with impeccable credentials. Listen to what is said. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. There's a lot of argument amongst theologians as to whether Nicodemus was a true believer or not, or whether he even became one or not whether this was an indication that he falls into the same category as the people spoken of in verses 23 through 25 who just simply were enamored with the signs. There is another side of that that says he had seen the signs, he was impressed with what was going on, and he recognized, although not fully at this point, something of the divine in Christ and knew that it went beyond, which was what motivated him to come to Jesus in the first place. I happen to fall into that particular camp after much consideration and thought regarding this matter. The reason is because later on in chapter 7, we see Nicodemus defend Jesus against the Sanhedrin and those who want to get rid of him. At the end of the story of the crucifixion, it is Nicodemus who joins with Joseph in order to bury Jesus with respect and dignity. I believe that Nicodemus was becoming a believer in Jesus. It was just more of a progressive experience, and it was his desire to truly know what was going on that motivated him. But in so doing, what we find is that Nicodemus isn't identified that way. 
At first, he's identified as a Pharisee, meaning he was very religious. He was a member of the sect of the Pharisees. He gave himself to the study and the obedience of all of the laws of the Old Testament, along with everything that had been added to it. Over 638 different laws, with the majority of them focused on what you should not do. He knew them all. And in the eyes of everybody else, he never broke a single one of them. But he was also a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Imagine the Supreme Court combined with Congress and all of it together in order to rule and govern the nation. They were the final word of governance in all matters of religion and civil order. He was a ruler of the Jews. Some even have suggested that he may have been one of the principal rulers. He addressed Jesus as rabbi or teacher, which was a sign of respect. He was acknowledging Jesus on an equal plane with himself, for he too was considered such. He recognized divine power. He said, no one can do the things that you do unless he has come from God, unless he knows God, unless there's something about God in him. He was recognizing the divine power that was working through Jesus. And even though he didn't know necessarily all of the details regarding its origin, nor did he understand its outcome, he recognized something was different. Clearly, this was a man that had all the bases covered outwardly. He was religious. He was a leader. He was respected. He was respectful and polite. He was political And he was loyal. And yet outward credentials are not enough to see the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about how much time we spend on outward stuff? It's like all of it. (laughs) And then when we don't, what do we do? We apologize. Oh, I'm sorry for the way I look. We're all sorry. (laughs) You need to do something about that. You really should be concerned about the way you smell, uh, not just the way you look. But have you ever noticed we give a lot of attention to outward stuff? Think about the amount of money you spend on outward stuff. Think about the kind of attention we give. And I'm not talking about just what pertains to your physical presence, but, but to the physical realm that we are bound to in the material existence that we live with every single day. Maintenance and upgrade and, and all the different things that go into that. We spend so much time on outward stuff. How much time do we spend on the soul? How much time do we spend fixed on the heart? How much time do we develop the mind? Now, I realize that some of these outward things do contribute to the development of more internal experiences as well, even without our knowing it. But the reality is that when it comes to the matter of the time that we set aside and we give to all of this experience that we call life, more of it is generated and financed and geared toward the external. And yet we constantly say, you can't take it with you. We constantly talk about how one day there's coming 
a new body that's going to be free of all of the limitations of the present physical experience. We talk about all of the future hope that we have, and yet then we go right back. Now, I'm not telling you that we shouldn't be taking care of the external realities of life. I'm telling you that we would do well to give some attention, at the very least, to those internal things that are often ignored. Nicodemus had devoted his life to external realities. Had it made a difference in his heart? I think some. Otherwise, he wouldn't be so taken with Jesus. He may not quite be there yet, and he doesn't really know how to frame the conversation. And I don't know that we would do any better. We might find ourselves in a very similar place. In fact, if we were to approach Jesus today, would we not be respectful? Would we not recognize him as a teacher? Would we not exclaim that no one can do what you do unless you are somehow associated with God? I think we would all go along with that. And yet still, all the while missing the greatest need that is before us. Fortunately, his impeccable credentials lead him to an experience with Jesus that I'm describing as an insightful confrontation. An insightful confrontation. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, there is an issue here. Jesus answers the question that has yet to be asked. Nicodemus doesn't ask a question. Jesus looks beyond that, cuts right to the heart of the matter. Jesus knows what is in the heart of Nicodemus, and he answers the real question that's on his mind. How can I see the kingdom of God? What can you tell me about this divine reality that still remains just a little bit beyond my grasp? I'm a religious man, and I've devoted myself to service for all of these years. I've risen in the ranks. I've achieved status and standing and even a degree of comfort with all these matters pertaining to faith. And yet still, something is missing. It is the missing element that Jesus addresses While he recognized divine power in Jesus, he says, no one can do these signs unless God is with him, unless something is different. Clearly, this was a man that was seeking something, and Jesus answers that question. The only way to see the kingdom of God, he says, is to be born again. With this single statement, Jesus literally turns upside down all of the understanding and religious knowledge of the Pharisees up to this point. I think probably still today that there are people who are having their lives turned upside down with Jesus' call to be born again. There's a lot about that phrase that has become pretty common among evangelicals. In fact, um, it's become even something of a, a buzzword that we are identified with, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively, depending on who's talking about it. What does it really mean? Well, the whole concept of new birth is a fundamental uh, principle that is involved in understanding biblical salvation. 
Salvation is about an experience that takes place within the life of the person that regenerates, brings something to life that previously wasn't there. And so the born-again experience helps us to avoid the whole idea of remodeling. Being saved is not about just sprucing up the outside. It's not just about a, an individual attention to a remodeling of what already is in place. It's brand new life. It's a new creation, Paul says. It is a reminder to us that what Christ does in us is take that which was dead and he causes it to become alive. And so the word regeneration, while not often associated with new birth or the word for being born again, is actually there. Now, sometimes people uh, think about this from different perspectives. Being born again talks about it from kind of the, the female perspective of giving birth. Uh, whereas if you talk about it from the male perspective, it speaks more of legacy uh, that, that has to do with that which comes from that lineage. Uh, I think that the born again idea of being brought into this new life is the appropriate way to understand it. And as a result of that, most translations will use born again rather than some other means to describe this experience. But what he's talking about is new life. But notice the, the very foundation of it. New life at its most basic beginning. New life from the very moment that this takes place is something that comes into existence that wasn't there before. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven, he said, the way you are now. You must be born again. Now, it's not a big surprise that Nicodemus doesn't understand this or has trouble really processing this information. Immediately he asks, how is this possible? He could only think in terms of physical realities. But Jesus was talking about spiritual realities. The physical world is filled with limitations and boundaries, but now he's introducing him to a spiritual world that has no limits and has no boundaries. There's nothing to prevent us from gaining access to the spiritual world that exists in this manner when we are born again. This is what Jesus is saying that Nicodemus really wants, even though Nicodemus doesn't know that, it seems, quite yet. We all want to understand, don't we? Have you ever asked the big questions in difficult times? Have you ever contemplated the what-ifs of life? What if this had happened? What if that had happened? Would the result or the experience have turned out differently? We question ourselves, what if I had done something differently? Or what if I had done this instead of that? Would it have made a difference in the long run? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be mindful of the consequences of our actions and choices. We certainly should. But I'm also saying that those questions after the fact generally have no answers. And you will always come to a point where you're going to be left to either accept 
the reality of where you are and be okay with it or not. You say, well, how do you force yourself to be okay with something that you are essentially not okay with? Understand that it's not a moment of decision alone, but it is a process in which and by which we are brought through this progressive time where we let go of our demand to know and we embrace faith in the God who knows all. How long does it take? (laughs) All of it. It takes all of it. Whatever time you have left, it takes all of it. It's not something that happens immediately. It's not something that will ever be done. But every experience of life, every encounter along the way, to one degree or another, especially those that become milestone markers in the journey will leave us with a sense of what we don't know. And now we are faced with the choice. Will we trust by faith? Or we will continue to make ourselves frantic trying to figure it out. Nicodemus said, how can this be? It's ridiculous. This doesn't fit any of my preconceived notions. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to enter the womb again and be born again? It doesn't make any sense. The day will come when all of us will have to stop thinking only about physical realities and we will have to turn our attention to spiritual realities to find the answers that come by faith. Jesus responds to him with instructional conclusion. In verses 5 through 11, he says this, Beginning in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit. There are a lot of different ways of looking at this, and again, a lot of confusion that surrounds it. Uh, But Jesus is essentially explaining the new birth experience is a matter of renewal and transformation. Think of renewal and transformation. In ancient Judaism, water or baptism, especially as it was being done by John, as it will be done by Jesus, was a sign of repentance and renewal. It was a part of certain ritual worship experiences where they would either bathe or they would have water splashed on them or they would have water poured upon them or they would be baptized in water. And all of this would be a a sign, an outward sign of renewal. It wasn't the renewal itself. There wasn't anything uh, particularly sanctified about the water or separated from it. It was just something that was a common practice that they all related to. We go all the way back in the Old Testament. We find this over and over over. Ezekiel even prophesied that the day would come where we would be washed with water and made clean and empowered by the Spirit of God. So even in a time when the kind of concepts and principles and understandings of God's work were limited, they still got that. Jesus taps right into that and would not a Pharisee have understood it. 
Is he talking about baptism? Not specifically, no. Does it relate to baptism? Absolutely, yes. But he's not saying that you have to be baptized to be saved. He's saying that it's to show as a sign of renewal just as they understood it. But what do you have to have to be saved? The Spirit. Water and Spirit, he says. Notice how he doesn't go on to talk about the water, but he certainly does go on to talk about the Spirit. The result of the transformation is the privilege of entering into the kingdom of God. Before, he said you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Now, he says you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of the water and spirit that he speaks of. But he goes on, he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit, meaning that there are two very distinct understandings of the realms in which we exist. We exist in the physical realm that is flesh. But it is not until we enter into that spiritual experience that we move beyond. Nicodemus had been so preoccupied with the external keeping of laws that he had completely missed the requirement of the internal transformation that can come only in the heart and by the Spirit. Jesus explained to him something that is obvious to everyone. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, you just don't see where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with the one born of the Spirit. We do not see the wind coming. We have no control over where it goes. And yet the effects of the wind are visible and perceptible through the senses. In the same manner, the Holy Spirit comes upon the believer to bring regeneration and life in a way that is beyond human comprehension or control. It is initiated by God, carried out by God, and realized as a result of one's experience and faith in God. And yet the effects, while you may not be able to describe the details, are inescapable. They are evident in the outward sign of salvation and new life. In verses 9 and 10, Nicodemus' mind is literally blown. He said to him, how can these things be? He just kind of gave up. I don't get it. Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He can't understand how this can be. He's struggling to let go of that, that past that he has been so devoted to that is now crippling his understanding in spite of a lifetime of devotion to study, knowledge, and strict adherence to the rules. Jesus is challenging him to true faith. He just didn't have a foundation to understand what it means to be born again. Faith in Jesus is never defined by human explanation and performance, but by the inward work of the Holy Spirit producing new life and transformation. It is a profound reality that often challenges our basic understanding. You say, well, Nicodemus was a legalist. He was a Jew that was devoted to the law only. Christians aren't legalists. <laughs> and Baptists really aren't legalists, right? 
We're not bound by strict adherence to rules or traditions. Even saying it sounds, you don't even want to be in the room where you can hear somebody say this, do you? Because you know it's true that we are legalistic. And not because we were taught that, it's because that's what we want. Don't ask me to walk by faith, just give me the rules and the regulations. Tell me what to do and what not to do. I'll decide whether or not I want to be a part of that and then let's go. What are we saying? We're saying I want a religion that fits the parameters and boundaries of what I expect and what I believe I am capable of accomplishing. What is that? That's idolatry. That's false religion. That's missing the whole point of what it means to be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus is struggling. And I think if we would all be honest, we have some struggles of our own today. In verse 11, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven the Son of Man. He said, I recognize that you're struggling. You're a teacher. In fact, some may even go as far to say that Nicodemus was the preeminent teacher, senior professor of all things religious. He said, you are the one that everyone looks to for information and yet you don't understand. If you can't understand the earthly things, If all you are is captivated by the signs and the outward evidences, if all you are is engaged in maintaining an exterior appearance, then how can I talk to you about the transformation of the spirit and soul? How can I talk to you about the brokenness of your own heart? How can I talk to you about the heavenly wonders and the things that await that person who trusts absolutely in Jesus Christ? Jesus very plainly states that he is simply giving testimony to what he sees and has seen and what he knows. And yet still, people don't believe. If he won't believe the basic truths evident in the physical world as Jesus shows his mastery and authority and sovereignty over them, then how can he believe the supernatural truths that are visible only in the spiritual realm? No one's ever gone to heaven and looked at it, Jesus says, and then come back to report on everything. I know there are people who claim that, but there's going to be a problem reconciling that with what this says. But Jesus says there is one. He didn't go from earth to heaven and then back to earth. He was always in heaven. And he came to earth. In fact, he said, there's not only one, there's only one. 
No one has ever gone to heaven and come back to report on what they've seen. But there is one who came from heaven to earth, Jesus, the Son of Man. In fact, I would say the man behind the miracles. What I'm telling us is that knowing Jesus is more than looking religious. In fact, it's more than being religious. Knowing Jesus is a matter of the heart as a result of the work of the Spirit. Do you know Jesus today? He's the man behind the miracles that you need to get acquainted with.